All I know is that I've committed to being honest with myself and emotionally honest and then physically honest in, in the world as I'm out walking and speaking and doing. Um, and to take more time to pause and just reflect on does this check out with who I really believe myself to be? Because if it doesn't, I can't touch it. I've got an addictive personality inside and I just can't touch it if it's not me. Hey guys, I'm Miles. And I'm Ruthie. And welcome to the Unspoken Podcast, where we believe that saying the unsaid may be the hardest, but one of the most important things we can ever do. Yes. Our authentic self is the best gift that we have to offer this world, but sadly, we live in this culture that tells us that we should hide it. So we would love for you to join us and listen along, and we hope that you might find connection and healing in the courage that no important words go unspoken. Make up fake love, make them all laugh. Come on, someone, take off your mask. It's nice to me. Today on the podcast, we welcome Eduardo Garcia. Eduardo is a chef, outdoorsman, athlete, and entrepreneur. During a Montana backcountry hike in October 2011, Eduardo was electrocuted by a buried high-voltage power source, where he suffered extensive life-threatening injuries. Today, five years after his injury, Eduardo is the subject of an award-winning documentary, Charged. Eduardo's personal mission on this earth is to help those dealing with trauma. He is a spokesperson and athlete for the Challenge Athletes Foundation, a nonprofit that provides support to people with physical disabilities so they can pursue active lifestyles. There are special humans out in the world, and then there's Eduardo. He is one of the most amazing people that I've ever met, and I think you will thank us later for introducing his story to you if you haven't heard it yet, because it's important. I think it's what the world needs. But there's so much about him that I didn't even know. I mean, he's got this amazing food company that's just taken off across the world called Montana Mex. You're just going to hear a lot about him, but more than anything, he's inspiring and he's doing important work in the world. Yes. When Eduardo walks in a room, he lights it up. He is one of the brightest, most present humble, kindest men I've yet to encounter on this earth. And it feels like such a privilege that we got to sit down with him and get to share a piece of the light that he is in this world. So buckle up, friends. (laughs) It's going to be good. (laughs) Hi, guys. He just told me recently that I do that at the beginning of all. <laughs> and it's my favorite thing. Oh, well, Eduardo, I have been, I literally popped up this morning with the biggest pig and shit grin you've ever seen. <laughs> so excited about getting to talk with you today. So thank you so much for being here. We're so grateful. I'm honored. Thank you for having me, Miles. You too. I'm, uh, I'm blessed and super grateful to be here as well. Uh, Well, I want to share with the audience how I first heard your name. Um, Last year, when we were all planning to go to Mountain Film and Telluride, our our little group, um, our friend Aaron Paul sent out a text and he said, the most important video that y'all are going to see while you're there is Charged. I got to meet this guy and he, side note, was like, and Ruthie, you need to meet him. And so that was like the one that I was like, I'll see this one no matter what. And 
Uh, we got there way early, which I don't do update. I'm never early to anything. And we were like front <laughs> row, first in line. And I was just so excited. And I didn't really know much about it. Um, I didn't do any research. I just trusted Aaron. And you came over, you saw Jed and I, I don't know if you even remember this. Um, and you came over and you introduced yourself. And I was like, thought I was seeing a celebrity. I was like, oh my gosh, he's so kind. And then I got to watch your documentary charged which guys you can watch it on is it amazon and itunes amazon itunes hulu it is truly one of the most beautiful incredible redemptive amazing just it shifted something inside of me and so me and my friends are all holding hands watching it and i was like could barely breathe from crying so hard by just being so touched by your story and your honesty and your vulnerability and your resilience. And the second it was over and they opened Q&A, I felt like a kid. Like I was like sitting on my hands waiting. And then I was like, me, 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 me. The question, <laughs> I was like the first person, which I didn't have a question. I just wanted to tell you all the amazing things about you. That's truth. But that happened. Uh, you have had a huge impact on my life and I know a huge impact on so many others. So I'm so excited to dive in and to share your story with our audience. Yeah, thanks for saying that, Ruthie. I remember I, um, my my fiance had brought your story to my attention. Uh, my fiance Becca Skinner had told me about this gal, Ruthie. You know, and because in our relationship we talk about human stuff. We talk about hurt and pain, and we're a couple, and um, and you're one of her inspirations. You know, mm-hmm. and so she, and so I. That's all I really knew is that I knew um, I knew there was a chance you'd be at Mountain Film for, for however I knew. And then so I was actually showing up early as I tried to do at a lot of festivals to get out and just say hello to folks mm-hmm. and thank them. And especially so tell you about Mountain Film, it can either be like a full blown blizzard because it's it's in um, let's see, it's May, mm-hmm. right? It's like sometime mid-May. It's either a blizzard or it can be just gorgeous, but it's going to be hot and sunny. Right. And so you thank people for hanging in the elements. And I remember going through the line and just saying thanks to folks. And as I got towards the front, there's like there's two individuals just like derelict hanging out in the shade. And I don't like there must have been like a Starbucks cup in position numero uno, like as a placeholder, you know, maybe with some like lipstick the on the on like the lid. But then the, like you could almost track like the intentional footprints from the cup over to the wall in the shade. And there's some dude who's, you know, just kicked back you with know, a hat over his eyes. And, and then there's Ruthie standing in the shade doing what Ruthie was doing. And I knew I was like, oh, that's Ruthie Lindsay. I got to go say hi. So, yeah, I remember that. Oh, so I had the opportunity to and am grateful to, to get to know you more. Uh, the thing I noticed most about you, I guess, is how engaged you were pre and post because mm-hmm. I saw you come up and engage Ruthie. And then on the back end, we all stood around and talked to you. And you didn't have to do that. I mean, th- that theater was packed. Mm-hmm. There were tons of people that wanted your time. I remember they were trying to usher us out to get onto the next film. And we were, it was like time just stood still. And what uh, I perceived about you in watching your story in the film felt genuinely authentic to the man I saw mm-hmm. post. And I thought, you don't always see that. And that is fascinating. So, and there was a lot of other reasons in the film. People have to see it to get to know you. But I kind of walked away with a little bit of a man crush. <laughs> and I couldn't decide. I was like, I want to be friends with this guy or maybe go on a date with him. I'm not sure. <laughs> and I'm straight, by the way. Uh, but I uh, uh, I just... And married. And married. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Vanessa. 
but there are so many things about you that uh, that I, you know, we, we probably grew up in the country the same way. We both love the outdoors, um, but the way you embrace it and the way you've leaned into some of the challenges around the relationship with your father, there was just so much, and that's going to be the challenge here today. But yet, I'm excited about it. Is we usually want to know, like, who's the person behind the profession? Because you're a renowned chef. You've got an amazing company, Montana Mex. Yeah. Uh, and and now you're, you know, filmmaker and or you start in your story. And I'm sure there's way more to come. But your story is so vulnerable and it's mm-hmm. already been put out there. But I still walked away with questions because it's usually what we try to get to is who's the person behind the story. Thanks for the opportunity to, um, thank you for asking you know, for looking at me and saying, all right, well, who are you? And um, that's a treat, you know, it's not often that we even have time or take the time or dedicate the time to understand beyond what we see. Mm. And um, I'm a lover, I'm an adventurer, man, and, and I, I am a devotee of, of learning. I mean, there's sort of like some DNA core bits right there. Um, Beyond that, I, I'm very much a, um, I'm a really passionate mix of, of masculine and feminine. You know, I was raised by women. Um, there's so much about me that is very like man, you know, drive the truck and have the car hearts and know how to sharpen a chainsaw and do all like those things. But then, you know, who knows how and where it comes from, but maybe it's my love of mother nature that's connected me with a the feminine side of the duality of, of the human person, mm-hmm. which I think has both. And um, so maybe my love of mother nature plus being raised by women. So my, my father was not around um, in my life until you know I met him. I guess I met him when I was born, but when I was about two months old, uh, he left our mm-hmm. family. And then I met him again when I was 14 and then had him back in my life. So I was raised by my mother and my older sister. And um, yeah, so I, I could go deeper down all of these, but to answer your question of who who am I, I'm like that person that can, you know, you and I could leave this door right now and probably survive in the woods and make it to Montana in a mm-hmm. week, you know, walking. And, and at the same time, I, I could hang with Ruthie and and look at you know design patterns and color schemes and there's that like I am that dual type of person mm. in my world. Tell me about meeting your dad for the first time at fourteen. Yeah, um, I guess just to preface that meeting, um, I grew up with other friends that were in single parent homes in a community in a, in a spiritual community. Um, six years of my life were Van Nuys, California. And then in 87, we moved to Montana. So maybe it was part of growing up in a community that gave a true, but biologically false sense of having a family unit because mm. it was, I didn't have a dad, but maybe because it was the community, I never felt like a true father figure missing, right? Um, but at some point we were realizing in our early teens, 11, 12, that there was no man in the house. There was no father figure. Mm. And my twin brother, Eugenio, uh, was the one that actually asked, um, my mom and started the question one night over dinner, you know, like, Hey, so who is our dad and where is our dad? And, and I'm certain it's not like we would have never talked about this, but it was just a never, it was a never a drawn out point until like we were 12, 11, 12, 13. And then 
you know, my brother said, I want to meet my dad. Mm-hmm. We were 14 years old. And I feel like, um, you know, my mom picked up the phone and called a grocery store on the corner of the street where my dad lives in Isla Mujeres, Mexico, um, because he didn't have a house phone, it was pre-cell phones. And um, within three weeks, we were in Mexico, like flying down. And um, so like, so here we are. So it's my mother, my older sister, Indra, myself and my twin flying down. And all I know about my dad is that, um, is what my mom's told me. He's a uh, generational shark and lobster fisherman uh, commercial fisherman. He comes from a family of fishermen. They've been doing this for generations in the Yucatan of Mexico. This is, for everyone listening, this is where Cancun is. This is where Senor Frogs and MTV happens. <laughs> but this is like, you know, this is before all that. This is when Cancun was cocleros, which are, are, are palm plantations for palm oil and um, like rural land, Mayan country, mm. pre MTV. And um, so this is where my dad's from. So this is what we're flying into. And all I know is that he comes from this generational fishing family. And, um, you know, I've seen maybe one picture of him in my life, maybe not even. Wow. And um, and then I have, the only thing I have of his up until this point, being 13, is a National Geographic issue. And there's an article about him and my uncle and it shows his fingers. So, so I just know what his fingers look like. He's holding this shark mouth open and Jacques Cousteau was down. And I, we can get into that later too. But so that's all I know about this guy. Wow. And so my first memory of meeting him is rolling out of Cancun airport and like the coolest dude on earth is strolling up, you know, at the out exterior walkway to the exit of the airport in white linen super dark skin, dark, long curly hair, gold aviators and like 20 gold chains on, you know. And um, and she's like, that's your dad. Wow. You know. Take us back to a 14-year-old. I just can't imagine the emotion. I mean, he was screwed because we were all over him, you know, just like the next, I don't, we, let's say we we're in Mexico for 10 days and it was, I think he looked at my mom at some point and was like, Kati, like, how did you handle these kids mm. like you know, i've only been with them for a couple of days and i'm floored um yeah we, you know we made up for lost time quickly i mean were you were you excited were you were you angry what was the emotion oh, there's so there's three kids uh at the you know my older sister my twin myself i was excited mm. uh i think we all were i mean how many times did I cry myself to sleep in Montana because I didn't have a dad to teach me how to throw a football mm. or how to do all of these things? I mean, literally, I, re- I remember that. I remember straight crying, like, you know, praying to the beings, you know, that our religion prayed to, to like send me a dad so that I, he could teach wow. me how to play football. Like mm. it was, that's so basic. And, and like people dream and pray for lots of things. I'm sitting here praying for like a dad to show up, teach me how to throw a spiral football. You know, because I was playing football and there were better people out than me. And I just figured out oh, because I don't have a dad. Like, mm-hmm. um, so for me, when I got to meet my dad, I was like. Like an answered prayer. Oh, I was like, I was like, don't leave me. Uh, like wherever you're going, I want to go. Mm. Whatever you're doing, I want to do. And that continued from that moment on. I think it's important because we have, a, in a sense, I think there's a bit of a fatherless culture epidemic. Uh, that we deal with right now. There's a lot of people that I have been friends with and worked with that either didn't have a dad 
or had an absentee dad or dad was working too much or everything in between. Mm -hmm. And it's in a way, I don't know if this is all of it, but I would definitely trace back a line to what we see now, which is a really screwed up perspective around masculinity and what it looks like. And I just, for you to start out your conversation by all of me is the feminine and the masculine and this health, you just described a healthy human. Right. And how did you arrive there? How did you take that message? Because I think there's so many people that are struggling in, in their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s that didn't get a healthy imprint that have gone another way with it, that haven't figured out how to explore all of themselves. What do you attribute that to? I mean, how do you... 36 years old, never been asked that question. That's beautiful. I mean, perhaps it was the obvious, which is being raised a man and being in a male body, but by women and experiencing that. Um, maybe it was experiencing with sexuality and, and recognizing what I, what I was naturally drawn towards and, and figuring that one out. Um, but then also taking clues from the world around us and like not being afraid to sleep in like if sleep in the same bed with another man because it's a hotel room and you got one bed or to hold my dad's hand for hours mm. um i read a book that was written by a uh, a gay author about like the art of being a man and the author i forget his name um makes a mention and a point about other cultures outside the United States where it is not uncommon to see two men hold hands and walk and talk mm. and, and really like share in each other's space. And um, I'm like, I get that. Yes. Like, I get that, oh, I you know, that. you know, and, uh, and we just don't have that. We, we don't see that in the United States really that often. And, um, so yeah, I, I guess for me, how did I arrive to that place where I recognized I was part of both of these things? I mean, I don't know. I think there's a certain beauty to our own humanity where we do have to self-pollinate. Like we have to be a little bit asexual, I think, because sometimes you are alone and, and, and you don't have the duality of the man, woman, the yin, the yang, and you have to still be whole. I don't know, like as a chef and a lover, and it's kind of like, it makes sense to know about the other sex if you, mm-hmm. you, you know, as you interact with the world around you and to not just be like, oh, I'm a dude. So that's what I know. Cause like, how does that serve you? I don't know. I don't think so. I hope what you just said serves and, and feel free to double up if you've got a message for people out there. Cause with the only, the only pattern we're seeing with the pain in our culture is the only examples of mass tragedy right now are white men, white young men, or that there's not women aren't shooting places up. Yeah. It's, it's white men. And it makes you ask the question, it's like, what are we missing? And what, why do white men in our culture feel trapped in this skewed perspective of who they think they can be? And I think the message from somebody like you, and I'm, I want to be a part of the solution too, is that you can be all of you. Like I, I'm an outdoorsman, I hunt, I fish, I do all these things and I can be feminine and that's okay. I can be sensitive, I can be artistic, I can be creative. I, I feel like until we explore all of that, then there's gonna be an imprisonment that's gonna eventually mm. blow up or come out sideways somewhere. That is so huge and it's so beautiful. I'm, I wanna just 
piggyback what Miles was saying, like the fact that you came to this place coming from where you're coming from and not being modeled what you are today necessarily in your formative years. It's like speaks incredibly to just who you are as a human. And I want to, and some people haven't, I think they will after they hear this, but there's just people listening right now that haven't heard your story and haven't seen the documentary, but I would love for you to give just an overview, a quick overview, because I know for me personally, my takeaway after watching, seeing, hearing you and getting the incredible privilege of experiencing you in person was I was so blown away. October 9th, 2011, um, I was electrocuted with 2,400 volts from a unmarked um, exposed power source um, four miles from my truck while on a backcountry hunt. And for whatever the reasons, I didn't die immediately on the spot. Mm. I'm just telling you what I know. I made it out of the woods. I, I hiked out. I woke up and channeled and utilized every single gram of vitality still left inside my body. Straight up, I used everything and made my way to a home down on the valley floor. They called 911 and saved my life. Spent 50 days in ICU. After two years, I had probably like 21 surgeries to reconstruct my scalp and all the exit wounds. I um, became an amputee, lost my left hand uh, below my elbow, halfway on my forearm. And then bizarrely through my ICU stay, was told I had testicular cancer. And so I also went through three months of chemotherapy um, and bundled that into that two-year recovery process. Um, so that's, that's the nutshell version of this insane moment that happened when I was 30 years old, mm. being electrocuted, becoming an amputee, mm. becoming a cancer survivor. Yeah, the question of like, how in the hell did you not just survive the injury because that's unanswerable, right. okay? Like yeah. that's unanswerable. Um, there's no way to know why my body didn't shut down in that point, in that moment. But how did, you, how did I survive the next six years and how am I still surviving? And um, some, of it is, some of it is ignorance. We think of ignorance as this negative. And I don't know. I think there's a positive in every negative. And it may only be a 99 to 1% type of exchange. It's not always a 50-50 kind of balance in any one thing. But I think in ignorance, the 1% positive in ignorance is that maybe not knowing allows you to just right. move forward organically, 100%. Authentic, authentically, you know, to find your own tributary out. And so going into my surgeries, you know, like I knew, I knew I'd been electrocuted. I knew that I was in dire straits and therefore, if anyone's ever been in a fight, if anyone's ever been... If anyone's ever tried, when you're dying, you access that part of you that tries and you go next level. Like you, you just, and that's, that's the human body. I mean, Miles, you just had a child, right? Your first one. And so when you hear that baby cry for the first time, that is the warrior edge in everybody that lays dormant 
I think. Hmm. And with just a touch of ignorance, that warrior can still come out because it doesn't know any better. It doesn't have any walls up against it. And so it's the fights and kicks and screams. So there's a chunk of that ignorant warrior that came out in me, which is what got me through the first real dicey period of, you know, whether it be the first hour to the first 10 days. And then moving forward, my dad was born with a hole between his left and right lobes in his heart. Um, you know, when you grow up in a, when you're born in a hammock and you grow up in a thatched roof hut on like a back river in the middle of nowhere, jungle, Yucatan, Mexico, you're not getting that thing fixed as a kid. You're either living or dying. And he lived and ended up being a deep sea diver, free diver on 75% oxygen. Not. Wow. And then I'm also an outdoorsman. I'm a hunter. I'm a fisherman. I've, I've killed the earthworm to then kill the trout, to then eat the trout. Like I've, and then I'm a chef. Like I've pulled carrots out of the ground. I've, I've butchered things. And, and this is maybe bizarre for some people to think, but just allow yourself to try and make this connection that to be a chef is to be an intermediary between life and death for others and yourself as you're taking the raw nutritional content that sits in the middle of life and death and then you're delivering it to someone and it's either hummus and a carrot stick or it's something far more complicated and elevated, but you're still playing a role for yourself and others. And doing that professionally for 20 years from the butchery to the cooking of a liver and a chicken gizzard, that's an organ. That's like yeah. how things are, organisms are built. Mm. It sounds weird, but when I was recovering, when I became an amputee and I was watching you know, my scars heal, there's a part of me that kind of went through this biology course of life. And it was like, it was not all new to me. So I was very fascinated with my mm. human physical recovery. And because I was fascinated and intrigued by it, it parlayed the potential point where I could have just been overcome in sorrow and loss and grief. Like it allowed me to be stimulated by, well, it's kind of cool and that was interesting. And which is yeah. kind of half macabre and half not. I was just like fascinated <laughs> with my own. So you never lost your curiosity through your whole recovery process? Oh, no, man. I would like, I would ask to, I was like the patient with the million questions. Mm. Yeah. And they, you didn't know you were going to make it out. Didn't they prep you at one point to, that this may not? Yeah, the first five days it was like a um, bag of bones with a heartbeat, just like mm. a, a dead man walking type of scenario. I mean, I just in watching, I did it again the second time watching the film yesterday. There are shots of you in the hospital. Like I, I can't watch. I have to look away. It's so unfathomable to me that you survived with these holes, like coming out of your Literally skull. Literally holes. Literal holes on the whole entire left side of your body there. You're seeing your ribs. Like I, like my, I was like almost shielding my eyes because it was almost too much. I felt it for you. I'm like my, it's so much. You mentioned in the, the film, and I don't want to say a lot about it because I want everybody to be able to see it. There's so many nuggets. Mm -hmm. uh, when we watched it again yesterday, some of the people that were seeing it for the first time, they said, I just want to write down, there were so many sound bites and quotes that he said that uh, were inspired me. But you did say something that struck me, and I remember it was, it was almost through the end where you, you take on the physical realm of recovery uh, like a beast. I mean, the stuff that you mm -hmm. did, the stuff that you continued to do, you said you're an adventurer, that's putting it mildly. I mean, yeah. 
dear God. It's unbelievable what all you've accomplished. But you also said the physical part was easy compared to the emotional part. Say more about that. My mom, you know, she's like a Jewish mother. So there's lots of stories and they're always told. So um, the one that I've heard a lot is when she, you know, like the, the way Eduardito was when I was a little kid, toddler status, was my mom pulling her hair out like, Eduardo, 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 as I was like rolling up and crawling bookshelves and adventuring. And um, so I was, I was born in a, in a very physical way, uh, you know, like that was what I immediately wanted to do was just run and gun and jump and fly. And um, the emotional part of me, I probably um, just never really gave a ton of attention to. Like, I want to call bullshit out of myself a little too, because maybe I have, but I, I truly am not as educated in my own emotions as I am into my physical body. Mm -hmm. And so through my recovery, like I took the physical on, like naturally first was how am I going to do all this again? A, B, C, D, fly fish, cook, hunt, drive, a stick shift, all these things. And that's the physical part. And through my natural abilities there, you know, I, my self-esteem comes back. And right. So I'm like picking the low hanging fruit because that's kind of just what I know how to do. But I'll never forget one of my um, nurses, Jenny, she was in ICU and I remember just, we were about to watch a movie, myself and Jenny Jane, my ex-girlfriend, who was my caregiver there for all 50 days of ICU. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. An angel. Uh, she was there for like a full two years as a full-time caregiver. But uh, so it's Jenny Jane, myself, and then the nurse, Jenny. And she just like said, hey, don't forget, since these aren't her words, but roughly she was saying, don't forget to do the emotional work. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being like, it didn't blow her off to her face, but in my mind, I was like, yeah, 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 no problem. I'm good emotionally, done. And then years later, after my injury, you know, maybe it was like 2013, 14, and I realized that I, I was still like, I was starting to hear it from other people that I respected and cared for and loved. Like, hey, Eduardo, you don't look happy, and yet you mm -hmm. tell everyone to be happy, and you tell everyone you are happy. Que pasa? What's going on? Mm -hmm. So I started looking into it. I started having full-blown sit-downs with friends and saying, hey, like, what do you see in me that is not my best part, that is not serving me? And I started to just pick apart like the negative traits. Because again, like lower hanging fruit, if you have a good friend and they're going to be honest with you. And so the emotional journey though is, um, I'm like, I, I st I'm still, I've got no answers. You know, I'm still... All I know is that I've committed to being honest with myself and emotionally honest and then physically honest in, in the world as I'm out walking and speaking and doing um, and to take more time to pause and just reflect on, mm. does this check out with who I mm. really believe myself to be? Because if it doesn't, I can't touch it. Yeah. I've got an addictive personality inside and I just can't touch it if it's not me. What did you tell me earlier your mom would always tell you growing up? Oh yeah, my mom, um, my mom actually printed this on the inside of a ring for my twin brother. Um, right reason, right motive, right cause. Mm. Like commandments to live by.
So it's interesting when you said, I don't, because I do perceive you as highly self-aware, mm-hmm. uh, but also knowing what you don't know is a humbling thing to own, but also pretty courageous. But when you say, I don't, when it comes to my emotional, I don't have any answers. What's it feel like not to have any answers? I guess like like weakness, you know, I'm used to being able to pull rabbits out of a hat, you know, immediately. Um, and emotional intelligence, I like, may, maybe others have that more, but I think I have the, I think I have my finger on the pulse of, of how I'll become educated. And a lot of it has to do with letting other people in mm-hmm. and um, not being the loudest voice in the room, even if everyone's asking you to speak, is, is being that guy that says, answers with a question to hear what others have to say, to learn from others around us. I, uh, yeah, I, my, my, my fiance has um, a piece of art on her wrist and it says, go gently. And when we met, I remember asking her about it and, and she said something to the effect of it. Um, it was her daily reminder that if she was going to be in the world with her power, it could only really be used accurately if the approach was gentle. Mm. Otherwise, like if you swing a hammer to the nail and it hasn't been set right, it just ping and flies off and mm. you never get it in the wall. Yet if you just set that nail the right way, then you can just... Well, I can relate to not knowing and then, and I'm in the, in the business of helping people work with their emotions and which means I've had to do a ton of my own work. I didn't get into it by accident. I tripped into it through the pain of my own story, the emotional pain of my own story. But even today, I still try to control the narrative um, and out, out intellectualize the idea of exploring emotions. Uh, even when you said, I'm really curious and you're also really smart. So the way I went about attacking my emotions is I asked people, sat down with them and said, what do you see in me? Mm. So it's almost like you were reversing roles with a counseling process. I've done that. I still do that some. And I think it's an attribute and it's also a wall as a way to control anybody getting too close to that. Hmm. Yeah. What am I supposed to say to that? Other than um, I'll add to that, that a question I get pre the documentary, pre film festivals, and then through Q&A sessions was, are you seeing a counselor? Like, are you going to get therapy? And I don't think I'm still living a lie, but there was a part of me that for many years was like, well, F that. I'm not going to a therapist. I'm not going to a counselor. I don't need that. And then there was a part of me that said, well, I need something here. And then I I found a a lot of assistance through um, being part of a, uh, foundation that helps other people with disabilities. So, you know, working with other people with disabilities brought me into recognizing and loving my own disability. Um, and then um, asking others for their honest feedback on me is a part of that. You know, I haven't gone to see a therapist yet. And it's not an excuse, all right? But one of the reasons I haven't is is I just, I don't even know where to start. Like I, and I, And I don't know what issues I would even bring to the table. Mm. You know, it's like, I don't have, I don't need to go and say I have a drinking problem. I don't have a drinking problem. But I am, I've heard it enough from so many people that I'm on the hunt for the right person to connect with. Mm. And um, because I'm, I'm a learner. 
I'm intrigued. I want to know. Yeah. I want to, and if not anything, it'll be a conversation I get to pay for. That'll be good. Well, you strike me as somebody that would, you would probably know as much about psychology in two hours as people that have been doing it for 10 years because you just are going to stalk down information. And there are a lot of people in your circumstance because you put your pain out publicly that are going to tell you you need what you need to do. That shouldn't be your motivation. I would ignore it. Intuitively, you kind of have. Yeah. Um, I even thought that when I saw the film the first time. I was like, man, that guy needs to get help. You know why I thought that is that wasn't about you. That was about me. And so when people tell you you need something, they're projecting your story onto Mm. theirs. It means they care about you. It was out of a well-intended thing, but I always step back from that and think, wait a minute, I need to hold the mirror up. This guy is calling something deeper into my story. So I bet you get that a hundred times, people telling you. And when it comes to therapy and counseling and exploring your own story, it's not something anybody needs. It's something everybody deserves. That's right. Yes. And it needs to be in your Mm. own time. Yes. And with your own idea. And you get Mm -hmm. the opportunity to lean into that when it's right. And there should be zero judgment from yourself or from us on what that process looks like. I can only speak for myself, but it has been like the greatest it's painful at times, but it also, it, I feel like I just have this image of being like wrapped up and spooned and held and cared for in a really beautiful, safe way, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there and I look forward to it. And in talking about, I don't know if I've ever spent this much time and that was, it was like five minutes discussing therapy, you know, um, and why folks should or shouldn't go. But while being in the conversation with everybody, I was also thinking like, okay, there is therapeutic parts of life that are outside mm. of yes. being with another person or a professional. And, um, and I think the therapy that I have found, which I think anybody can access on their own, pre a flip through the Rolodex and, and showing up and going to a, a session is here's my challenge to everybody is, is honesty, mm-hmm. truth. Mm-hmm. That to pin down what is honest or true about yourself in the thing being discussed or scrutinized mm-hmm. is therapeutic. And, um, you know, so growing up in Montana, um, you know, boys locker room, bringing the brown kid, you know, my body being the way my body is, but a few shades darker than other bodies in the room. Like it started young for me being like, is this an attractive body? Is this a good body? Is this, you know, is any of this good? And, um, and maybe needing to prove to myself that it was through unhealthy means, like whatever it was, like teenage sex or whatever, right? Um, not respecting the fire that is love and passion in the human body. And, and then, so like fast forward and I'm 19 years old and I'm going to cooking school in Seattle and, you know, I'm working this job and I'm working that job and I got an offer to work for a bronze sculptor and it was like 12 bucks an hour and I was getting paid 10 bucks an hour working the line at a restaurant. I was like, you kidding me? 12 bucks? Hell yeah. <laughs> I'll do that. What do I got to do? <laughs> and like, well, you know, you just like stand naked and let someone sculpt you. And immediately it was like, what? really? Hmm, 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 I don't know about that. And, and so I went anyway, 
And uh, I never forget that moment, um, you know, and it's like, it's a potter studio, you know, and there's like finished and unfinished pieces everywhere. And it's kind of eclectic and cool. And um, John Cisco, you know, and John Cisco says, uh, well, thanks for showing up. Um, listen, put your stuff there, do that there. And there's a closet over there with a robe, put it on, come out. I'm like, okay. So I put it on, I come out. And, uh, and then that moment of truth where John says, okay, cool. Drop the robe and let's like, just do a pose like this. And, you know, like contort yourself with a hand up here and a leg down there. And, and is that like that moment where every single fear I ever had about being naked in a room or of how I was built and made is like right in front of me and I'm holding all of the pieces and I'm like either about to just do something with it or I'm just going to drop it all and run, you know? And I was like, all right, here we go, robe off. And I never forget, it was like, it was actually before the even robe came off. Like I had already experienced the relief of truth mm-hmm. before I even took it off. But I took the robe off and stood there and made the weird pose. <laughs> I could still do it to this day because I stood so many hours in that position. But um, at 12 bucks an hour, people, it was worth it. But the best thing I ever got other than the 12 bucks an hour was um, like watching this sculptor look at my physical form, you know, like head to toe and then hone in on like my big toe and be like, whoa, I just love your toe. And he just, and he starts like sculpting the foot. Mm. And so I, I worked with that guy for like two years and it, it, it was, that was, so that truth of like, this is me, that ownership moment mm. was so therapeutic for like decades of doubt and everything else. And so Anyway, I've like I've I've experienced that further as an amputee and as uh, you know, missing other body parts. You know, I'm glad you shared that story because I think Mm -hmm. it's it's relevant. It sounds as if he engaged you in a professional relationship with no other agenda other than to make his art. Yes, that's good therapy. Mm -hmm. Yes, you mentioned earlier about truth, and uh, I love how you framed that, but. Finish this sentence. My truth is. I am that I am. I am just me. Like I am all me. I am. Like I always say like, you know, like woe is me. Like, oh, woe is me, you know. All right, listen, everybody. I'm missing my left testicle. I'm missing three ribs on my left side. I'm missing my left forearm. Blah, 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 blah. But I'm like, whoa, this is me, you know, like. That's the truth is like, mm. this is me. Love it or leave it. Mm. I love it. I love that. I recently was thinking about my scars. Like I, I wore a bikini for the first time last, I was on vacation like a month ago and I had it in probably like 12 years. And I don't even think about my scars. Like they're all hidden from clothes in my clothing, my hair. And, but I was just like, why have I not done that? Like, what is it? what am I hiding? Or is there like some kind of deep shame there that I'm not even aware of? And so I kind of just sat with it for a little bit. And, and then I started like thinking about all of my scars and, and like how they've all been this piece of my story. And they've all, there's like brokenness through those. Like they, all of these scars have caused a lot of physical, my, you know, my day in day out life, there's a lot of physical pain, but I also see how every one of those scars have like healed me. And they've given me this process to wholeness that I don't think I would have ever had without every one of these scars that like, <laughs> like literally give me so much pain every day. 
but they're like the best part of me. They have, they have like catapulted me in this journey. Like they're a part of my healing. The, every scar is a part of my healing Yeah. and the most beautiful, like, and I would not change one of them. Heck yeah. I say, I always say that our scars are the roadmap to where we are mm-hmm. in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. You can trace someone's scar tissue back to where they started, to where they are today from mm-hmm. like the umbilical cord being number one. That's mm-hmm. the first scar you ever get in life. Mm-hmm. That's something that is a unique uh, shared experience that mm-hmm. the both of you have is that we all have scars. Some people don't know about them. Uh, emotional scars you can't see, but yours you can actually see. You both have physical scars from uh, what you've experienced. I'd love to hear you both answer this if you're open to it. But uh, if your scars could speak, what would they say? I think my scars would, I think they would say, you're welcome. We're happy to hold you where you are. Mm. We're happy to have brought you back to who you are. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, <laughs> <I love> that. <laughs> it's so got chills much. on that one. You're welcome. <laughs> well, that's a way better answer than what I would have said. But my first thought, like, I did this retreat last weekend, and I went through this like mental process, and I thought of every single thing that had caused me pain, and. I like physically, I was just like holding myself, like hugging myself and just saying like, thank you. Like I was like, thank you to the ambulance driver that hit me. Like, thank you so much for him. And I hope he knows how loved he is. And like, I said, thank you for my ex-husband. Like, oh, thank you so much for him. And I just went through every, like every single thing that popped in my brain that has caused pain. I just felt this overwhelming sense of, um, gratitude because I know that I know that I know it's like they have made me who I am today and they are they are pieces and the part of the journey of my wholeness and for some reason you and I have been given this really crazy bizarre little opportunity and mine's on such a small level but like I've been given the opportunity to have a voice to speak to other people that are hurting Mm -hmm. and I know like my email like this girl who I'm writing this email back who got out of bed today and felt hope because for some reason my crazy ass scars and choices have given her the hope that she too can get up like this feels like such a privilege like every scar feels like a privilege and an honor and I would not change one thing on that I'm gonna double down on what Ruthie said is that (laughs) I I'm going to double down on that and that I think if our collective scars, and I'm going to open this question back out to not just being to Ruthie and I, but to everyone in the room and then everyone listening, that I think if our scars could speak, they would all shout and they would say it in, in their own beautiful voices and they would just say, you can do it. Mm. Like That's what scars say. Like You can do it. That's what a scar is. A scar is a you can do it right like every single one of them holds us together and is the reminder that you can do it everyone can live that story and live that truth and it's a daily choice and it is always the harder choice but it's the one that will crack you open and make you 
unstoppable in the most holy way. Like it, it feels otherworldly. Like we were talking about earlier at lunch, like when I saw you instantly, like when I saw you, it wasn't, I didn't see your physical form. I saw you because when you start living that way, it, you have these new eyes to see the universe is so beautiful in that too. It's like you attract it and it comes into your life. And like, I saw that in miles. The second I saw, I'm like, I see you. Oh my God, I see you. Hi. (laughs) You know, it's something, it has nothing to do with our physical bodies. It's a spiritual thing. All that being said, I, I think like it's okay to we're going to fail. Yes. We're not always going to be in that yes. place of, of clarity and, and capacity to sit in that Zen, right? Yes. Like, I don't know if I've even ever looked up what the word Zen means, you know, but I know that we're not always there. Yes. And that's where others come into play. Yes. And what I, yeah, so like big time for me, I think why I'm still even standing here today is because I asked for help. Mm. It's because I reached out for help. Yes. You know, I needed it bad. Yes. And uh, and that was, yes, in the moment of having an ambulance pick me up and, and get me on a med jet and the med jet showing up in ICU. Mm. But it, it, it's the continuous event whereby I need help. Yes. And as a chef, you know, like, so I chefed a, a meal last night here in Nashville for like 40 of the hottest chefs in Nashville. And... I mean, the honor of doing that and, you know, the stoke in doing that and the potential fear factor of cooking for your peers. And I learned sometime in the last six years, but the first time I picked up a knife to cook again, I was like, all right, there's so much about me that wants to be the same chef I was. We just have to see what happens here. And I quickly realized, like I'm talking crying frustration, of, well, I'm not the same chef I was in regards to skill sets, but my code of why I cook is still intact, maybe even about to be even better, stronger, richer. And so the focus was no longer like the Eduardo from cooking school that literally would have a ruler on my cutting board and was like quarter inch dice, quarter inch dice, you know, 16th inch dice. And like the perfectionism of the process went out the freaking window and it was replaced with the purpose. That's right. Like, what is the purpose? Why do you cook? Well, I cook to make love to others. Mm. Like I cook to share and connect with others and inspire love and life in others, Mm. you know? And so, yeah, it's not about making sure every potato is peeled right, but it's about making sure that it's done with intentions and love and, you know. What kind of spiritual dialogue do you have currently? And did it change post-tragedy? And Has it evolved over the years? Or It hasn't 180 changed since my tragedy. I, um, I was raised in a very spiritual community. Um, I mean, we, we had, um, you know, Krishna and Buddha along with um, photos of Jesus and Mother Mary and Archangel Michael, like we had That's literally, oh we, had, we had, you know, and I would put a yarmulke on if I was on the East Coast, go into a bat mitzvah. Like we had every religion under the sun under our roof growing up. Um, but in practice, you know, I don't 
I don't go to service on Sundays, you know. So spiritually, as an adult, outside of my mom's home, I'm kind of an, an energy seeker, you know, uh, and even that not crazy active, you know. Um, I only started, I say started, and yet maybe like once a year I'll try and meditate, um, you know. So for me, my practice is is just being engaged with, with energy, with, with what makes me and others feel right, you know, um, and being open and available to feeling it from others too. You know, like put me in a gospel church and I will be singing as soon as I know the lyrics. Mm. Because for me, it's not about like mm -hmm. whatever the text is in the back of those pews. It's about the community of people raising their voice and song and joy and, um, and I could experience that, I think, anywhere, you know. Watching footage of you in nature hunting was a spiritual experience. Uh, that's my church. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you can see it. That's my, you know how, um, like, every scripture has something, somewhere in there, there's a line in some language that talks about, like, the hand of God, like, you know, giving you the whole, ha, yuck, if you screw up or do something wrong. Well, in Mother Nature, that's like, you know, a grizzly bear or something, you know? So it, it's like even mother nature has um, major rules to play by and, and respectful codes to adhere to. And um, yeah, when I'm, I swear when I walk from my house to the chicken coop, it's like 50 feet and I experience the light that comes off of a chandelier in a great hall or cathedral off the morning dew on grass, like I straight up. and. Yeah, maybe like residual LSD stuff from high school. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. But I, I, I still see those things. I love you. It's, it's true. You know, when I, 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 I still, I see beauty yes. in everything yes. straight up. Like I, I drive, in, dr drive in here today. I saw a lamppost laying in a median on green grass and it was beautiful to me. I don't know why. I was just like, it's broken. It's beautiful. Wow. You know, and it's the same way. I like, I look at my scars and my, you know, lack of a forearm and whatever else it's, it's like, um, yeah, the outdoors is, is, is like the, the most awesome, yes. awesome, uh, church there is for me. Everything yeah. John O'Donohue says in that podcast yeah. to you about beauty. Holy it's cow. So it is what you're saying. The yeah. Beauty is everywhere and we all have it. Even if we can't go hike in Montana and experience this beauty, like there's something inside. We've all experienced a song that just changes us and you feel it in your core. And we've all had those moments and they live inside of us. So when we're in stressful situations or pan what our environment might not look beautiful, you can access that. Well, and so like what I'm trying to bottle up, like if I could bottle up a non-food thing, like if I could bottle up a spirit that I would offer others to help them, it would be like a bottle of the beauty of the world. Like, you know, and it, it would, the bottle could never be big enough to hold it all. So it would just be small, right? And it would have it all in there somehow. It'd be magic. But like, that's the key for me, you know, that's the key for me is to just recognize that if it exists in this world, there's gonna be some type of beauty to it. Remember when I said earlier, like 
the balance is not always a 50-50 thing. It could be a 90-10 thing, right? It could be totally skewed, but there will always be positive. The positive cannot exist without the negative. Like they can't, you know? And like that for me, like my dad passed last November mm. and, so uh, you know, like in his death, mm. I like walking through hell, walking through the heat and fire of your dad, like in front of your eyes, like it was, you know, off it goes. And experiencing that legitimately, I felt more alive than I'd ever been before in my life. Mm. You know, the same way we feel when we are in rapture with another human while making love in an experience like, like music, like, you know, there's beauty in everything. Mm. And when you're lying on your back, beat up with life and death in front of you, I think that is the crux maneuver. That's the crux move to get out of that, to, to move, to just move mm. is look for the beauty, yeah. look for the beauty, like look mm. for the beauty. I love uh, the idea of bottling up an endless supply of beauty, mm. and giving it to the world. That's a quote we can remember. I can't get that image. One of the, my favorite images from the film was the image of you and your dad mm-hmm. uh, fishing towards the end. And then when you helped him, you were holding him by the, he was holding you by the arm and y'all were walking back and, mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know he passed. I just just learning that. So I felt the connection to him and y'all's relationship. But I'm just curious, um, what did you say at his service? Hmm. Um, well, well, my dad had more memorials than anyone I know. He had about five. So, yeah. well, we had him in Mexico and then we had him in different parts of Mexico and then back here in Montana. We held his service on the banks of the Yellowstone River in Montana, and he loved the river. He was born on the waters of the Caribbean, and yet when he was in Montana, he loved the river. That was the water that drains out through the Mississippi and down to the Gulf and ends up in Isla Mujeres. So, mm. like that's what brought him home. And so, anyway, we we took a we took a bird's nest and we took his ashes and we mixed them with honey. It was his favorite sweetener, and we crushed some cinnamon stick in there um, because he loved cinnamon, and we crushed some some herb because um, you know. Uh, smoking herb helped him find his appetite and curb his pain. So we threw that in there with him and, uh, and we put that in the nest and we put an eagle's feather on it. And um, like 60 of us were on the bank and my nephew brought the nest out to the rapids and let it go. And, um, oh, God. Wow. you know, what I, I, what I basically said to the crowd was that my dad Loved living more than anyone I've ever met. And um, to the point that he abused that love so many times in his life that it ended his life early. Mm -hmm. And if there was any lesson, you could see it when he was like in his last year when he just knew he was coming to his last pages were his best years because he was no longer addictively chasing his love of the world. He was just letting the love happen. And, uh, and I just reminded everybody of that was his last year was just to love more. Love is the key is what my dad would say. He'd always say, love is the key. And, um, and so I just asked everybody that in honor of him to just love harder, love deeper, love more, live mm-hmm. with love. Mm-hmm. Wow. What a way to honor his legacy. Uh, when I give you this, tell 
tell us what you're looking at there. <laughs> um, this is a photo that I took of my dad, Papi, Manuel Alfredo Garcia Castilla, um, with my nephew, Brendan. And my dad's topless, as he always is. And, um, and he's showing his grandson how to spearfish, like how to spear. Uh, and this is taken in the Rio Manati. So this is the um, uh, mangrove estuary or um, brackish water lagoon where he was raised and born in Quintana Roo, Yucatan, Mexico. Mm. And then one more. <laughs> Tell us what you, what you got there. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is Los Hermanos Garcia. Uh, this is, or others would call us the terrible twins or the terrorist <laughs> twins. Terrorists. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but you, this is a photo of uh, the boys, as my mom would call us, calls us the boys. And uh, we're both in corduroys with pearl snap um, button downs on. And of course, my twin brother is buttoned all the way up with a bolo looking sharp. And I've got the top button, both of the top, both of the buttons undone, just grinning. Um <laughs> You know, because, you know, like I got shit to go do. Man. So I gotta be, yeah. get into. Uh-huh. How old are you there? Um, we're probably about four and a half, five years old in this photo. And, um, oh man, being, being born a twin um, and sharing the womb with another soul beyond that of your mother. Oh man, when I went in uh, for surgery, to have my left hand amputated. Um, my brother, uh, he was so brave and so tough during that process. And uh, it was like, there was an exchange with my brother before I went into surgery that in losing my left hand, I had his. And, uh, and I wouldn't be without, like I could still be whole in this world. Mm. And that's why, and we need other people. Like we need others. Um, and at five years old, did he go by Eduardo? <laughs> um, he went by Eugenio and uh, no one could ever pronounce Eugenio. Eugenio. <laughs> and so we call him huge. And, uh, and, uh, and now I call him, uh, I call him all kinds of things, but yeah, he pretty much calls me Eddie and I call him huge. What would be, based in knowing what you know now, uh, what's a message that you would have for a little five-year-old huge? Mm. Yeah, for my twin brother, I'd tell him to, I'd tell him to just be, to be true for the love and affection he wants to show the world around him and to stay stay in his lane of truth mm. because we both want to just help and share and please so many people around us that it has at times brought us way off center mm. out of our love and care and desire. Like I shared about my dad, like we are his kids. Mm. We are of my dad and our love of the world has gotten us in the deep end many times. And so it would be to just don't curb your enthusiasm, but, Right reason, right motive, right cause. Is it true to who you are? Hmm. That's powerful. So beautiful. Oh, you are so special. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just, my heart wells up. I just, this has been truly such an honor and a privilege to get to learn from you and to get to sit in the aura of your goodness and just beauty. Um, I am thrilled to think, to get to cheer on the sidelines of whatever is to come in your life. And you and Becca are just, you, when I think of y'all, I think of hope and I feel honored to know you, to know your story, to get to share it with our audience. Like this has been such a gift. Thank you so much. I'm honored. I'm humbled. Thank you for having me. Thanks to everyone listening for joining us. And um, I hope your I hope your heart is just thumping right now. Mine is good. Mine is, <laughs> is whoa. Is uh, is there anything you feel like you didn't get to say, or anything new you want to talk about that's coming up for you professionally or personally? You know, I um, I feel given an open floor like that, I uh, I stepped away from being a private chef. I started a company called Montana Max. It is my way to communicate my love of food with the world, and um, it is. It's 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 what I would feed little kids to to our elders in the community. It's it's just full of goodness, mm-hmm. and so to check that out, you know, yeah. uh, go to montanamex.com and and I'm not telling you go buy stuff. I'm telling you go learn. Like go see who we are, mm. and then buy some, you know. <laughs> um, and then I uh, we're, and it's amazing. We can attest to it. It is incredible. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And, and then yeah, just go charge film. You know, go to go go watch the film charge, and share it with someone else. Mm-hmm. Share it with others. We we made that film. We made charged not to sit idle, not to sit on a computer, but to be an inspiration talking piece for others outside of their TV and computer and everything else. But to be an active part of their day to day with others is to be charged. Yes. Caring, uh, unbelievably present kind, gracious. Um, I could go on, but those are, I was trying to think of what are the words I would use to describe this experience, this conversation, but just the experience of how I get, am getting to know you. And because you've opened yourself in a public way, in such a raw and vulnerable way, you're going to touch a lot of hearts mm-hmm. of a lot of people that are in pain and struggle. And it's going to manifest stuff all, all over you and, and them. And that's a messy proposition, but you meet it in such a gracious and empathetic yes. way that uh, that's a message in itself. Mm-hmm. But of all the people that uh, have, and not me being one of them for a minute, and I caught myself, that have ever thought about or told you what you need, having spent the last hour and a half with you, you have everything you need. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. You're a joy. Thank you. Thanks, Miles. Thank Thanks, Ruthie. Make up fake love, make them all laugh. Someone, someone, take off your mask. It's nice to me. Thank you guys so much for being here with us today. We know that your time is valuable, so it just means the world to us that you would spend your time and energy with us. The music from our podcast is from one of my favorite bands, Oliver Riot, and the song is called Alcatraz, and it is from their EP Hallucinate. And I just cannot speak highly enough about these boys. They have a new record coming out soon, and you should check them out. They're amazing. 
definitely go get their music wherever you can get it. They are amazing and you're going to love them as much as we do. If you want to learn more about the Unspoken Podcast, please go to theunspokenpodcast.com for show notes and information about the guest. And please follow us on Instagram at the Unspoken Podcast. We'd also love for you to subscribe to the podcast and help us spread the news and share this because we cannot wait to show you what's up next. And we will be with you all again soon.